Good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Two days in? Okay, so far. Good news is tomorrow is Monday, and you can start again tomorrow. I've been uh, going to start eating clean every Monday for the past 52 weeks, so since last year, all right? So the resolutions can be picked up tomorrow. If you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Uh, today we are going to set out on a journey together to look at the life of Jesus in the book of Luke, okay? Very specific, um, very specific tasks we're kind of setting before our church over the next uh, 16 or 17 weeks, to look at the life of Jesus in the book of Luke. We've already been there over the past couple weeks uh, as we got ready for Christmas and, and uh, went through the Christmas story and all. Now we're going to pick up uh, with Jesus' life in Luke chapter 2 again. And as we set out on this journey, we set out with a singular goal in mind, okay? And I, I just want to kind of set our, set our time in this book up before we, before, we go, uh, before we go and go through it and understand what it is we hope to accomplish. What do we hope to accomplish by looking at the life of Jesus in the book of Luke over the next 16 weeks? Here's what I want us to, here's what I want us to do. I want us to the ne- for the next 16 weeks to open the book of Luke and look at the life of Jesus. And my prayer is that over the next 16 weeks, we would actually see Jesus over and over and over and over again. And let me be really clear, not see the Jesus you think you know. Okay? Every one of us comes in here with a, with a presupposition about who we think Jesus is, with, with presuppositions in our mind about what well, Jesus is obviously like this, or Jesus is like that, or the Jesus that I worship. Uh, let me just be as blunt as possible. I do not care about the Jesus that you worship. Okay, I care about the Jesus that we're going to see in Luke. And here's why I think this is so important is because if we really see Jesus for who He actually is, I'm convinced, and I know this from personal experience, and I've seen it over and over and over and over again, Jesus actually changes everything for us. If, if what we read is true, Jesus changes everything, and, and above all else, listen, we are not fools longing for a hope. We have a confident assurance in who Jesus is. So we want to look at the life of Jesus. And I, I think an illustration might be helpful to understand why I think it's so important for us to actually like, spend some time looking at Jesus. Uh, I, I've got a, a good friend who I ended up with a, a conversation uh, in with the other day. And it was actually a, a few of us together. We were talking about uh, following Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus and uh, different, just different questions. And one of the people, uh, a, a guy I think a lot of, I can see God working in his life, uh, he's growing closer to the Lord. A guy I think a lot of asked this question. He said, I understand like that we're right, but how do we know what we believe is right? Like, How do we know what we believe is right? And let me just say this, that is a fantastic question. Because some of us have been coming in here week after week, right, for our entire lives, and we've never given any thought to why we're right and why like Islam or Buddhism is wrong right? We've just been coming in, going out, and we've just been taking for granted that we're right. How do we know that we're right? And, and he phrased it this way. I thought this was a great way to phrase it. He said, like, if I had been born in another place, I'd probably believe what they believe. 
In other words, had I been born, and like, let's, let's have some intellectual humility here for a second. Had I been born, had you been born in, a play, in another place where they worshipped, uh, where they were uh, Islamic or, or Buddhist or whatever, you would believe what they believe. So how do we know that we have reason to hope? How do we know we're just not one of many? How do we know that we're the one and only? How do we know we have reason to hope? As we start looking in Luke, what I want us to see is that if we have Jesus, we have reason to hope. Because here's what I told him. And, and listen, we talk, we, you can talk about this, uh, you can talk about this for, forever, but here's the reality. If there was a man who claimed to be the Son of God, and he came to this earth, and he healed people who were sick, and fed the hungry, and, and he opened the eyes of the blind. But if he was killed, and then rose again on the third day, then we have something that no other religion in the world has. We have a God who's still alive. We have a Savior who's still alive. So the, it's so important because if we see Jesus for who He really is, we see that we have reason to hope. So let's look at the life of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us real quick and we'll dive into Luke chapter 2, okay? Luke chapter 2, uh, I'm going to pray first, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. God, I pray that over the next few minutes you would just um, put us on the same page in your word, God. Lord, I, I honestly just pray personally, dear God, as I come before you, dear God, this morning, Lord, my heart is, uh, is tired, and I just pray that over the next few minutes you would just overcome that by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you might do something in this place. And God, I pray that when we leave here, dear God, we would not talk about, dear God, how good the message was or how good the worship was, but we would talk about how good you are, Jesus, as we see you this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 22. I want you to understand something before we start. This is the only account of Christ's early life that we have, okay? Uh, you might be wondering, well, I, we talk about Jesus all the time. We always talk about Jesus as an adult. There's a reason for that. The Bible does not tell us a whole lot about Jesus as a young man. As a matter of fact, this is the only, um, this is the only scriptural account that we have of Jesus as a young man, and it starts in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. We have two separate scenes. I want us to look at them both. The Bible says this, And when the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Real quick, let's talk about this. Who is they? Who is they? they brought him to the temple. Uh, obviously, it's talking about Mary and Joseph here, and they're bringing Jesus to the temple. And Luke is kind of uh, uh, combining two different uh, rituals that would have happened after someone gave birth um, in, the, in Jewish culture in the first century. Uh, first of all, it talks about how they had to present Jesus at the temple. Whenever a, a woman had a uh, son, the firstborn child, uh, we know this from the law, was to be dedicated to the Lord. Now, now, uh, not in most circumstances, that did not mean that they had to go into the service of the Lord, right? You can go and uh, read uh, the Old Testament uh, for examples. But an example of where this would uh, be played out is 1 Samuel, right? When Hannah prayed for a child and God gave her Samuel and then she brought him back to the Lord. That's what this ceremony is. At the very least, you have to dedicate your child to the Lord by bringing that firstborn male, by bringing him to the temple. And, but it's also a combination of another ritual. Uh, in, in the first century culture, a Jewish lady by the 
uh, by uh, the declaration of the law, would have been ceremonially unclean after giving childbirth. She would have been unclean for 33 days if she had given birth to a male, and 66 days if she had given birth to a female. So I say all that to say, let's put some parameters on what's happening here. Jesus is roughly about one month old, and his parents are bringing him into the temple in order to dedicate him to the Lord. Okay? Verse 26. Or verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So get this image in your head, okay? Uh, when the Bible tells us there's this man named Simeon who was in the temple and he had been promised by God that you would not die, he will not die before he sees Christ anointed, before he sees the Messiah, all right? And so he is looking expectantly for the Messiah. And all of a sudden, one day, Mary and Joseph walk in carrying Jesus. Now, we can assume that Simeon is an old man based on the way he speaks, right? He had been promised he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord. And then what does he say? He's ready to die after his eyes have seen, uh, after his eyes have seen Jesus. So we can assume that, this is, that Simeon is an old man. Now, uh, mamas in particular, let, let's put this in perspective. Jesus is about 33 days old. You're bringing him into the temple, right? And the Bible doesn't tell us that Simeon was a priest, right? It's not like this is somebody who's supposed to be taking the child, right? You walk into the temple with your one-month-old. Can we just talk about, praise God, like most of most children at one month, they're not even here yet, right? You're still staying at home, amen, okay? You, the, you walk into the temple with this one-month-old, and some old guy walks up to the baby and takes it. This is kind of weird just to start with, right? Mama, how are you responding to that? Not well, okay? This, this guy, though, takes the baby, and it, he hold, it puts him in his arms, and he begins to sing a song. Look what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I want you to get an image of this, and this may not like resound with you if you're not a millennial, but all of those who grew up on Lion King, you know what we're watching right now? We're watching a Lion King moment. Like... <laughs> I'm glad y'all thought the other two services didn't think that was funny, and I think it's hilarious. <laughs> like, Simeon takes this child, right, and we can only assume that he held him out like the, the ape or whatever it is in Lion King, right? And Pride Rock just goes, goes nuts. That's what Simeon does. He says, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. But now I want you to know something. This is going to be important for where we're coming back to later on. He declares a purpose for the baby Christ. My eyes have seen what? The salvation of God. All right, it, this, it, it, this is not, a, oh, look how cute the baby. No, this, this baby has a purpose. Verse 33, And his mother and father marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Be, listen to this, Behold, Mary, like you're talking to a mom here. We can read these words and not realize he's talking to, to Jesus' mom. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And he will be a sign, and for a sign that is opposed. In other words, this is the salvation 
of Israel, but this is going to be a sign that's opposed, and people are going to come against him, and they're going to fall and rise. And notice what he says, verse 35, and a sword will pierce your own soul also. In other words, Mary, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt to be the mother of Jesus. Verse 35, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption in Israel. Now, real quick, side note. I want you to notice here, all right, and this is especially important for a church like Harrison Bridge to pick up on, all right? I want you to notice here who are the first two people all right, that identified Jesus with a purpose and as the salvation and the redemption. All right, when Jesus walks into the temple, it is an old man named Simeon and an old woman named Anna. Okay, here's why this is important. We have been unashamed in the past couple of years in talking about who our target audience is. At, at, at Harrison Bridge at Upstate Church, we have our target audience is young families with kids in the home. Now, why is that? It's because I can walk out this front door right here and I can take a rock and I can throw it and hit a house with a young family with kids at home, all right? They're just everywhere, okay? But now we can get so caught up in reaching who all's around us that we forget that every generation of God's people have a purpose in reaching the next generation. Notice here that it was two people with gray hair who identified Jesus first. All right, why is that? Because it's because 34-year-olds don't know anything about life. 74-year-olds do, all right? And so it, you might be here today, and you might feel like, listen, I'm on the back nine, okay? Like, I, 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 you might feel like, man, I'm not only on the back nine, I'm like on, on hole 18. Listen, <laughs> praise God, maybe you'll get some playoff holes, but listen, you still got a purpose, okay? You still have a purpose. God, when God introduces to, uh, uh, to us the two, first two worshipers of Jesus in the temple, they're, they're people who are of the generation who's pouring into the next generation. You still have a purpose here. That was free. That's not in my notes, okay? Verse, verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to Nazareth, their own town. Verse 40. This is important. And the child grew up and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was twi- this is uh, the second scene, okay? We saw Jesus at, at 33 days old. Next time we see Jesus, this is crazy. He's 12 years old, okay? Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. Now I think oh, there's a lot of times we can be really hard on Mary and Joseph. Every time we read this story, we're like, how do you misplace the son? of God, okay? Uh, First of all, let's not judge. You lost your kid in Walmart last week, okay? So there's that. But also, I feel like it's a little more serious when you misplace the Son of God, right? Like, you misplace just a normal person. They misplace, like, the Savior of the world. But we have to understand the traveling dynamics here. The Bible tells us that Jesus was 12 years old at this time. Now, this is a very important point because Jesus here is on the verge of what the Jewish society would have considered manhood. At 13 years old, you would have become a man. So as they left to go home, the, the bandwagon would have traveled in two separate units. The children and the women would have gone first, and the men would have followed behind. Now, here's why this is important. 
Mary could have safely assumed if Jesus was 12 years old that Jesus was becoming a man that he probably wanted to walk with the men and it was time for him to do that, right? So she looked around, didn't see Jesus and assumed that he was with the men, right? Now, Joseph was also on his way. He, it would have been nothing for Joseph to look around and say, well, Jesus is 12. He wants to probably play with his cousins who are younger. So he's up with the women, right? No big deal. So this is how it probably would have happened, that they each assumed they were with the other one. But I love it. Verse 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. They went 24 hours and didn't know the kid wasn't there, right? But they begin to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. This is the equivalent, parents, when you're at home and you forget that your kids are there and you realize it's been quiet for like half an hour, right? This is what's happening here. So they begin to search. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, verse 49 is incredibly important. He said to him, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And they went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Here's what I want you to see. Luke is setting up for us from the very beginning of Jesus' life that Jesus was a, living a life that was with a purpose. Now you have to consider, Luke gave us this account when no other gospel writer thought it was important to include it. That means that Luke is trying to include something here that he thinks is contributing to, to the overall purpose of why Jesus came. And what Luke is trying to show us here in this passage is that Jesus came, and from the very beginning of Jesus' life, what we see is a life that is lived with purpose. What is that purpose? Jesus is living to save sinners. Jesus is living to save sinners. Here's the bottom line. If you take notes, this is what we're going to see. We have reason to hope today. We have hope when no other faith has hope, right? We have hope because Jesus came as a man and lived as a man in order to save men and women like us. That's what we're going to see as we walk through this text, that we ultimately have reason for hope when no other faith has hope because we have Jesus when no other faith has Jesus. I want you to see the, the purpose that Luke is setting out for here, the hope that Luke is getting us, giving us. The first thing we, Luke tries to show us, that we, the reason we have Jesus, is this. We have hope in the humanity of Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to see from this text. We have hope in the humanity of Jesus. I want you to note the dominant theme that, takes play, that, that Luke is weaving through these two different scenes. There's a dominant theme. We see it in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, and we see it in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Here's what Luke chapter 2, verse 40 says. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So in Jesus' infancy story here, what Luke tries to sow through the story is that, Luke, that Jesus was a child, and Jesus grew and became strong and increased in wisdom and in favor. Then look at Luke 2, verse 52. This is from uh, Jesus' time as a 12-year-old. Luke 2, 52 says this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What is Luke doing here? Luke is highlighting something that we often take for granted. 
Luke is pointing out to us something about Jesus that we often take for granted. Here's what it is. Jesus lived as a human and had to learn what it meant to be human. Do you realize this is the only experience that God was ever in where he, the Bible describes him as learning or growing? Why? Because when you're God, you don't have to do a whole lot of learning and growing, right? You're immutable. But when Jesus became man, guess what? He lived as a man, and he had to learn what it meant to be a man. This, this is almost mind-boggling to think that God had to, to, that the God himself had to learn what it meant to be, learn what it means to be human. Now, what does that mean? Let's talk about what it, what it means, that he had to learn to be human. First of all, just stating it as, as plainly as possible, it means that he had to learn. Jesus had to learn. Consider this. The source of all wisdom had to learn what it meant to be wise. Think, Proverbs chapter 8 describes wisdom personified, and it describes wisdom personified. We, we read back on the Old Testament and understand that it's describing Jesus. Now think about this. Wisdom personified had to learn what it means to be wise. Jesus had to learn. Then, this is even kind of weird, even kind of more strange, I guess. It's, it's, it, it messes with grammar, it's so strange, right? <laughs> Jesus grew. Jesus grew. What, the Bible says he grew in stature. What does that mean? That he was like you and I, and he grew. He got bigger. Ponder that the creator of the human genome became subject to human genetics. That the God who created bones was subject to growth spurts. How does that work? I don't know. I'm glad you asked. If you figured it out, let me know. Jesus had to learn to be submissive. Notice what it says, that he went with them and was submissive. Now imagine this, the king of all the universe. The Bible tells us in Revelations that, Je that Revelation that Jesus will sit on a throne. You know who sits on the throne? The people who are in charge of things. Not a whole lot of submitting to anyone if you're on a throne. The king of the universe became submissive to a pair of Jewish peasant teenagers from the backwoods. The next time you feel like you have to submit yourself to an incompetent boss, remember that Jesus submitted himself to Joseph. You'll be fine. Jesus was submissive. Not only that, like, think about all these things that Scripture tells us about Jesus' humanity. Jesus got hungry, Matthew 21, 18. That, that, that the God who created food and created the digestive system woke up one morning and said, man, I'm hungry. That Jesus got tired. John chapter 4 says he had been on a long journey walking and he was weary. That Jesus, he experienced severe sadness. John chapter eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He was sad. Jesus experienced severe, severe anxiety. Luke chapter 22, verse 44, he was sweating drops of blood. Jesus was human. And what does that mean? What does all of this add up to? It adds up to this. In short, Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Now, this is really important because all too often when we think of Christ, when we imagine Christ in our mind, we come in this place with our preconceived notions of Jesus, we think of Christ and we imagine Him to be a distant, uncaring, and, uh, uncaring God, ignorant of what we experience. And Luke is trying to tell us that nothing could be further from the truth. That you have reason to hope because you have God in your life who knows exactly what it's like to be you. 
And listen, this doesn't mean a lot to us until we need a God who knows what it's like to be us. Now, tell you, let me just, an illustration of how this works. This past week, I told Jenna the, uh, on uh, Thursday or Friday, this past week, for me, felt like the week that would never end. Anybody ever had a week like that? I know, like, so January 21st, 24th, December 24th to January 1st is supposed to be like seven days, right? It's 17 days, all right? I don't know the calendar, the solar system, how that works, but it's the longest period of time in the world, all right? And this week just kept going. We left here December 24th, right, on Christmas Eve, and we ate at a friend's house, and then uh, my wife, who was 24 weeks pregnant, I don't know why, I was wearing high heels, all right? The high heels have since been put in the closet. She took a fall, all right? And I, like, I'm going to pick on her. She's not in here, so y'all don't tell her. But like, it was not a graceful fall, okay? Like, she got mad at me because I didn't catch her, but like, I was really amazed because she fell for like 20 seconds. Like, she kept falling. And I was just watching. I was like, she's falling so long. Like, gravity has to take effect, right? But she fell. And so on Christmas Eve, we were in the hospital because my 24, 25-week pregnant wife fell. We want to make sure the baby was all right. So we stayed in the hospital Christmas Eve night. I'm told there are pictures circulating of me asleep in the hospital. Um, so that was fun. We get back home. We get back home on uh, Christmas morning, right? And we, we get to recover the next day. Uh, but you know, nothing is, there's not a better time in life for your car to break down than Christmas time. Because you haven't spent enough money on other things and you got plenty of cash laying around to fix a car, okay? So my car broke down twice this week because that was the way it was going to go, all right? And then we woke up Wednesday morning and my, Danny, my little girl, looked like she had been five rounds with Rocky. Anybody remember that, how like, the boxers look in Rocky when they, after they get done fighting, like they're just all swole up? That was Danny, right? You ask why she was swole up, the doctors don't know, okay? And so it, it, it's just been like the week that never ended. And I told, I told that to Jenna when we dropped her car off at the shop for the second time. We were on the way home. I was like, this week's got to get over at some point. But, you know, even as we were going, we talked about how we, me and her were talking to each other. And we were like, you know, it could be so much worse. But it was in that moment that I needed a God who understood what it was like to be me. When, I'm, when I say, God, this week's as long as it possibly could be. God, do you know what that's like? You know what Jesus' answer is? Yes. You see, we have reason to hope where no other faith in the world has reason to hope because we have a God who knows what it's like to be us. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to be us. So we have hope in the humanity of Jesus, but we also have hope in the divinity of Jesus. Luke is not only highlighting Jesus' humanity, he's highlighting his divinity. Luke wants us to see that we serve a, a Savior who is not just man, but, but also God. Now, I'm going to treat you like theological big boys and girls for just a second. I hope that's okay, all right? But we need, before I, before I point you in the text to where this is at, I want us to like put together this theologically. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, let's think about this. It means that Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity, who always was, who currently is, and always will be. That that is who Jesus is. That the Son of God has existed for all time. That there was a time when there was nothing, but there was the Son of God. And listen, this will really, really bake your noodle, okay? There was a time when the Son of God was, when Jesus was not. You know why? Because the Son of God always was. And when did Jesus come into being? <laughs> oh, that night in Bethlehem, that the Son of God took on bodily form. 
And now the Son of God will be called Jesus forevermore. Isn't that that crazy? Do you understand that? No, you don't. I don't either. It's okay, all right? It's fine. But this is what I'm saying when we're talking about Jesus being divine. Jesus is not like you and me in this way. He is the eternal Son of God. And I want you to see something. This is not something that gospel writers have just pulled out of thin air. This is not something that I have just made up. This is what Jesus says about himself. Because here's the deal. If Jesus didn't say this about himself, we could just say with other people, Jesus was a good teacher, one of many good teachers. But when Jesus comes and begins to say stuff like, I am the Son of God, that changes things. Notice what he says in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. When his parents had been looking for him, he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Do you not know I must be in my father's house? The first words of Jesus recorded in the New Testament when he was a child, 12 years old, you know what he said? I had to be in my father's house. But just so you know, this is not something just Luke's hitting at. This is through the the entirety of the Gospels. John chapter 5, verse 18 says this, The Jews wanted to kill Jesus because he called himself the Son of God, making himself equal with God. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day, and he says to them, before Abraham, I am. Now you might say, well, that doesn't sound like that big of a statement. Does anybody remember what God said to Moses at the burning bush? When Moses came to the burning bush, and he, said, God, he asked God, he says, who will I tell them that you are? What shall I tell them your name is? And God says to Moses, what? Hey, tell them my name is, I am who I am. And now what is Jesus saying here? Before Abraham, I am. In other words, the same God was in the bu- I'm the same guy, God that was in that bush. My name and his name, they're the same. Now this is radical stuff. That I am the Jesus is saying, he's 33 years old. Jesus is saying, I have always been and I will all, I always will be. That I was there at the Exodus. John chapter 10 verse 33, I and the Father are one. When people heard this, they would have wanted to stone Jesus. Nevertheless, he goes around saying, I am God. Now, let's be real clear. When someone comes around and begins to call themselves God, we've all got to make some decisions about what we're going to do with them. Let's put this in modern terms. Next week, you've got a guest preacher, right? I'm somewhere else, all right? And they come up and they get on stage and they say, just so we're clear here, but no need to open your Bible. I'll give you revelation today because I'm the son of God. Everybody in this room's got a decision to make at that point. What are we going to do with that person? Now, C.S. Lewis says we got three options. When somebody comes around calling themselves God, we got three options. We can, number one, assume that they're a liar, right? Uh, that would probably be where our mind's going. This guy's lying, like he, he, he's, just, he's trying to angle for something. But we would assume they're lying, they're not the Son of God. Would, would you hear somebody say, I'm the Son of God, and think, well, they, they may be telling the truth. No, you would think they're a liar. So you could think they're a liar, C.S. Lewis says. Or you could think they're a lunatic. Now, if we're honest, this is where most of us would go. Somebody gets up on stage and says, I am the Son of God. You know, we're from South Carolina. What are we going to say? Bless their heart. (laughs) They got some issues. Man, he's a good guy. Yeah, bless his heart. We would assume he's he's a lunatic, right? He's losing his mind. Or option number three, when somebody comes around saying they're God, we can think they're a liar, we can think they're a lunatic, or what? They can be Lord. They can be who they say they are. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene saying stuff like, hey, before Abraham, I am, I am the Son of God, the the Father and I are one, people had to make a decision about him. And I want you to understand this. You have to make a decision about him. 
Because if this is what Jesus is saying, you cannot approach Jesus as if He were one option among many. Think about what kind of good teacher would say stuff like, I'm the only way to heaven. No, he's either crazy or he is what he says he is. Here's what I want us to understand. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. This foolishness that considers Christ, this modern day sensibility, right, that, that considers Christ one way to heaven among many ways to heaven, I want you to understand, that is the height of intellectual just ignorance. It does not work. If Jesus came and Jesus said, I am the Son of God, we have to decide what it is we're going to do with Him. And get this, it's all or it's nothing. You don't approach the Son of God and say, I'll give you some of my life. Now here's why I think this is important, not only for those of us who are deciding what to do with Jesus, but those of us who are Christians. We can become so familiar with Jesus we can make Jesus so accessible. We can make Jesus so small, right? When we, we talk about the stuff like I was just talking about, the humanity of Jesus, we can make Jesus so much like us that we begin to minimize who He actually is. I want you to understand this. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Jesus is not like you. He was and He is and He is to come. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is God in flesh. Now, you might be thinking, all right, why does this matter? Because just a second ago, you were all big on Jesus knows what it's like to be me. Why is it so important that he's not like me? Uh, this is, we have to understand this because this is what makes Christianity different, okay? That Jesus is, it knows what it's like to be, be me tells me that I have a God who understands what it's like to be me. That Jesus is greater than me tells me I have a God who can do something about it. Right? We don't serve a powerless God who knows what it's like to be me. He can sympathize, but he's not willing to do anything about it. We have a God who knows what it's like to be me, and he's got the power to do something about it because he is the very Son of God. So we have hope in the divinity of Christ. We have hope in the humanity of Christ. And then the last thing I want you to see is this. We have hope in the mission of Christ. We have hope in the mission of Jesus. What I love about this passage is that from the very beginning of Christ's life, from his youth, right? The Bible tells us what Jesus' purpose was from the very beginning. Now, we have to be careful because we can read the Bible with our modern eyes and we can begin to read and think things like, well, Jesus' purpose was exclusively to show us how to be a good neighbor. That was a purpose. Jesus' purpose was exclusively to teach us how to love one another. Jesus did that. That was not His purpose. Luke shows us from the very beginning of Jesus' life what his purpose was. Now, parents, think about this with me. One of the best parts about being a parent, one of the parts that I've loved more than anything, is looking at my child and wondering what they're going to be. Yeah, parents, you ever done this? Like, you look at them, and their personalities are all so different, right? And you get the, and like, you just look at them and you wonder, what is my child going to be? I've, I've joked for the past five years with Danny. With Danny, it's very clear to me that it's jailhouse or White House, and there's very little in between. Okay? So I'm hoping for Pennsylvania Avenue, not Folsom Drive, all right? But seriously, like, I, I, there's been so many times where I, I, I'm not wishing this, point, this part away, but, man, I just see some things, and, like, I just can't wait to see what she's going to be, how she's going to turn out. Think about this, though. Mary and Joseph never had to wonder about Jesus. Why? because they were told from the very beginning. And Simeon, look at it, how he reaffirms it. Look what he says. 
He says, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I want you to see this. Christ's purpose from his birth. Christ did not come just to show us how to love people. Christ did not come just to show us how to be good neighbors. Christ came to save sinners. That was his purpose from the very beginning. And we need to understand this because we have to know that the cross was not a detour for God, from God's plan for Christ. The cross was God's plan for Christ. You see, we can begin to look at Jesus' life and we can begin to think, oh, how tragic was the cross that Jesus was, Jesus was crucified by a bunch of people. He had never done anything wrong. Uh, may we never read the Bible that way. What Luke is showing us is that everything from this point forward, everything from the angels in the field and to the tomb was all going to the cross and leading from the cross. Jesus came to save sinners. And listen, this is why we have reason to hope. Because now here's what we have. We have a God who knows what it's like to be us, a God who's strong enough to do something about it, and a God who did something about it. So listen, we can get so caught up sometimes in, in next steps and application. I want to offer us something different. I want to offer us a chance for the next 16 weeks to not question, God, what do I need to do better? To not question, God, how, God, is there anything, like, is there a next practical application? All of that will come, but what I want to offer us is a chance to just look at Jesus and to see Him for who He really is and to begin to understand that if this guy lived and if this guy died and if this guy rose again, nothing will ever be the same. Pray with me, church. God, thank You so much for your word. God, I do pray right now that you would overcome the foolish ramblings of a man so that you could get glory, God. Lord, I don't want anybody to leave here today and to think about how good the message was, God. God, I want people to leave here today and think about how good you are, Jesus. Dear God, that you know what it's like to be us, dear God, but that you have the power to do something, dear God. And you came from heaven to do something. And I pray that we would leave with a heart on fire because of that reality. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.